I'm going to talk to you out of Colossians chapter one, uh, but I'm, but I want to talk to you. Uh, I've said we want to we want to go back to the beginning and deal with some of the things that that go to our roots. At the core of our church is revival. That's why. That's why. Listen, when you're in a when you're in a church like ours and you start seeing the ebbing, you're like, okay, that's not okay. Because at the core of the church is that the spirit has come and, and blown across the life of the church and stirred us again and released the gifts of the spirit. Specifically, uh, when I uh, did research on uh, revival, I, I wrote about perpetuating the charisms or the gifts of the spirit in a local church movement. Uh, the sure sign that you need revival in the church is that the charisms become inoperable in the body. That's where I say going from, from that, so re- revive means you're, something is dead, it's coming to life. Specifically, the thing that the church has nurtured the poorest is prophecy, tongues, healing, these, these miraculous gifts, interpretation of tongues, faith miracles, we've, we've not done a very good job of stewarding those gifts. So poorly has the church done that most of the church has built theologies that say they don't operate anymore. Yeah. If you're, if you're raised in this church, then you'll, the, the idea is that you, you'll be a foreigner when you go somewhere where that's the case. Okay. In 1933, James Thurber published The Day the Dam Broke. Recalling his memories of 12 March 1913, true story, when the whole of his town in Ohio went for a run. Thurber recalled how the rumor began that the dam had broken. Around noon, suddenly someone began to run. It may be that he had simply remembered all of a moment an engagement to meet his wife, for which he was now frightfully late. Soon somebody else began to run, perhaps a newsboy in high spirits. Another man, a portly gentleman of affairs, broke out into a trot. Inside of 10 minutes, everybody on high street, from the Union Depot to the courthouse, was running. A loud mumble gradually crystallized into a dread, the dread word, dam. The dam has broken. The fear was put into words by a little old lady in an electric or a traffic cop or a small boy. Nobody knows who, nor does, any, does it really matter. 2,000 people were abruptly in full flight. Go east was the cry that arose. East from the river, east to safety. Go east, go east, go east. As the whole town stampedes to the east, nobody stops to consider that the dam is so far away from their town that it could not cause so much as a trickle of water to flow across High Street. Nor does anybody notice the absence of water. The faster residents who put miles of distance between themselves and the town eventually return home, as does everybody else. Some of them went 12 miles. As Thurber says, the next day the city went about its business as if nothing had happened, but there was no joking. It was two years or more before you dared treat the breaking of the dam lightly. Even now, 20 years after, there are a few persons who will, who will shut up like a clam <laughs> if you mention the afternoon of the great run. 
you want to have some fun with yourself, just just Google, um, <laughs> just just Google what happens when when people fall into a mass frenzy. Because there's all kind of weird stories about people in mass frenzies. So one of them I, I particularly enjoyed because it involved laughing. And, you know, couldn't help but hear the echoes of Toronto. Um, <laughs> but that's how things happen among human beings. Usually not as dramatically or as embarrassingly, but quite often much more devastatingly and frighteningly. Some idea gets loose in the midst of a group of people and it takes root and it begins to spread and it becomes true against all claims otherwise. This is happening wildly in our culture right now. I want to rail against it because it's so destructive. It's taking control of the entertainment industry. It's taking control, uh, especially taking control of all the humanity departments of all the universities. This kind of craziness. I, um, I was looking at it and the Lord touched me. And he said, I do that. And I began to think about revival. Because revival is just like that. Revival is a human virus inspired by Holy Spirit that goes from person to person and infects whole groups of people and can explode. Can't be explained any other way. I'd, I'd like to say, um, in fact, people who love revival are, are kind of broken into camps, and they're very devoted to their camp. They're basically, they're basically two really big camps of revival. One of the camps is, is sort of Pentecostal and charismatic, and it's, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of, uh, identified by, um, Excessive joy. Ecstasy of joy. Um, the other camp is, is um, most noted for um, rending repentance. Brokenness of tears. Now, neither side has the absence of what the other side has. It's just that they, they're, they're mostly identified as. And, um, you know, how we are, we'll tend to throw rocks at the other camp and say that's not real revival. But I've been one who's been um, an aficionado of both camps. Especially because of my, my very Baptist background, my very word-centered background. And um, I want you to know that God does this. And I was thinking back today over 
some of the fascination I have with revivals. And my heart was particularly drawn to the kinds of revivals that I first became acquainted with, which I would call them more like holiness revivals. Revivals where people knew that they needed to deal with their personal sin. I think probably the Lord is dealing with me on this uh, as much as anything because um, I've, I've seen so much that focuses on anointing and not holiness. And um, because I just started to read about the old revivals again, and I started to read about the beauty of the of the Christocentricity of those old revivals. Um, Wales in Great Britain was called the land of perpetual revival, and Scotland was uh, just incredibly noted for revival. And then there was the whole Wesley thing that happened in Great Britain. Great Britain was a land of revival like no other. So amazing. And uh, over the years, um, I've gone to I've gone to Britain a few times, and probably nothing was as dear to me as the day I uh, caught the mass transit and went to Dundee to the church that was led by one Robert Murray McShane. Have any of you ever heard of that name? A few. When I was a new believer, I cut my teeth on things like the memoir and remains of Robert Murray McShane. Now, before we come to him, I want to read the scripture to you. Colossians chapter 1. This particular book is my wife's favorite book. And uh, most of you will know, having heard her a number of times, when I get to her favorite passage, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope that's laid up for you in heaven. Hallelujah. Uh, by the way, you should take note sometime of how often. That triplet of faith, hope, and love is found in Paul's writings. Of this you have heard before in the word of, the, of truth, the gospel. Now note this, in the word of truth, the gospel. He's meaning by this that he's speaking of uh, not the biblical reference, but the spoken kerygma, the preached word of the cross. Which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it's bearing fruit and increasing. There's a virus. As also it does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. Now, 
this passage just simply opens us up to Paul's, uh, Paul's love for a group of people and what he sees happen to them. At every point when a church was planted in the first century, it took a move of the spirit that you could only classify as a revival. And in the Bible, the, the thing, there's one other thing that always comes with revival, and that is controversy. All you have to do is read Acts 2. It starts right in Acts 2 where the manifestation of the Spirit is so much upon them that the people say, they're drunk. Uh, All you have to do is read on through Acts and come to Acts 15 where the church literally had to convene a council to find out if it was okay for the Gentiles to get in on the party. And how they had to do it. And Paul is arguing it's entirely a work of the Spirit. It's not a work of the law. We've done that many, many times around here. And so from the day we heard it, we have not ceased to pray for you. Say pray for you. Okay, this is what drew me in. Because I told you we're going back. In every way I can, I'm going back to the beginning. New Life City. Simpler. More focus on experiencing the spirit. Um, the, the joyful, intimate worship that brought us to, to Christ. Joyful, intimate worship. We're in every way. We're going after him. We're going after him. We're going after him. Why? Because I'm like, are, are you guys done? I'm not done. Have you got everything you want? Have we seen everything we want in this city? There's been wonderful moves of the spirit in this city. All I'd have to do is talk to you about the Catholic charismatic movement or the awakening that produced Calvary Chapel in this city. Or the outpouring of the spirit that visited here after the outpouring uh, visited Vineyard and, and Toronto. And there's more to come. And I'm 100% sure that praying people are in the greatest position to receive what God wants to give us. We've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. There's that. Now, in most of the revivals, and, and like especially in, uh, in the first and second great awakening, the emphasis on walking in a manner worthy of the Lord was so, was so powerfully the emphasis that that's what led people to repent their sins openly. That's what led people to get broken about what was going on in their lives. It's, it's only when there's a great manifestation of the Spirit that you can get to the place where you can, you can be open. It's not without suggestiveness that, um, that drunkenness is likened into life in the Spirit. Because what drunkenness does is makes what's in you come out. 
And life in the Holy Spirit, a person filled with the Holy Spirit flows to other people. You, you, you witness more easily and you deal with yourself more easily. Shame clams us up, but the Holy Spirit blows past shame and opens us up so that we can release what's in our hearts to God and to, uh, to others. And so what you'll find in these old revivals is that the preachers would preach about people's manner of life. And what would happen is the church in those days, it was such a cultural relationship of of religion to the church that that the, the first great awakening was mostly a bunch of unconverted Christians getting converted, getting convicted of their sins and getting converted. Uh, the second great awakening uh, was a was a repentance revival because they associated repentance so profoundly with the Lord's table. And you would go off to camp meetings and you'd be at camp meetings for three weeks or two weeks preaching on holiness leading up to the taking of the Lord's Supper, which by that time everyone had to have repented. Because that's how they associated being able to go to the Lord's Supper. And listen, here's what I love. Whether people's theology is entirely correct or not, the Spirit comes and blesses them when they lean into Him. So it's to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Every, like every phrase of this verse, I, I'm not really exegeting it. It's just, I'm doing what Paul did to it. I'm just blowing it on you. And then Mama's verse. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. She likes to use the word kingdom there because it's used in the King James. And transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In whom we have redemption. We have the forgiveness of sins. Listen to me, church. Your sins are forgiven. In Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. In Jesus, you're forgiven. The liar who condemns you is a liar. Receive what's yours. Receive your inheritance. Receive the goodness of God. Stop punishing yourself. It won't, it won't work. He delivered us from the domain of darkness. The chains are out. Get ready. Get ready. Get ready. Get ready for a fresh season of seeing lots of deliverance. Lots of deliverance. In whom we have redemption, even the forgiveness of sins. And then, then, and then Paul turns to just tell us about Jesus. And I have to do this because I want you to know that these old, uh, especially these old Calvinist revivals, they were so Jesus-centric. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. This is why I don't understand walking away from him. I mean, where are you going to go? 
And how's it going to work out for you? The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Everything in the visible and the invisible world was created by him and for him. And he's before all things. And in him all things hold together. It's not gravity. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might have, he might be preeminent. I, I, I do that, might have. I, I went to Mid-America Seminary, and the, and, the, and the slogan of the seminary is this verse, that in all things he might have preeminence. In other words, that he might be first. Our old, our, the man who founded the seminary wrote this just wonderful song that we sang every day. To all the world for Jesus' sake. <laughs> Where bodies hurt and sad hearts ache. Lift high the cross, his love proclaim. Mid-America, bear his name. Well, we would sing that every day. It got inside of us. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Hallelujah. By the way, it was this calendar year that that the founder of that seminary went to be with the Lord. B. Gray Allison. His, he and his wife is still living. Wow. They were married 75 years. <laughs> that, in, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Hey, by the way, you should think about that text a little bit and say, there's some stuff he's talking about about heaven there that you don't understand. (laughs) To reconcile through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Um, This is why... Uh, it was a little hard for me to get into Holy Spirit life because a lot of times Holy Spirit people diminish or, or don't emphasize Jesus as centrally. Man, I was raised that Jesus is the center of everything. We were, we were to be obsessed with Jesus. And, and he's on our lips and in our thoughts and in our lives and in our heart. And, and he's everything. And uh, by the way, I don't mind that I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, but what it, but I'm filled with the Spirit of Jesus. Yeah. The, the fullness of the Godhead dwells in us because it dwelt in him. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in the body of his flesh um, by his death in order to present you. To do what now? To present you. Read it. 
above reproach before him. All right. He's going to do what? He's going to present you. Okay, now, this is important because uh, sometimes I get really frustrated with people who turn Christianity into um, sin management. Right? I really, and, I, and I really think that's like a misguided approach. But the end result of what those folks are after is real. That he wants to, he wants to present us holy and blameless. And that that's something we ought to value. Stop, stop asking how much can we get away with and ask how much can you get rid of. I'll take that. Help me, Lord, though. Help me. If indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and which I, Paul, became a minister. Okay. Anybody who wants to be a minister, either full-time or you're like, wait, I'm not full-time minister, but I'm a minister. That passage that I just read to you is your mandate. Getting in on that with him. This is what, this is Paul saying, this is Paul saying, this is what I became a minister of. This is what I am ministering. This gospel, this vastness, this wonderful gift. And this is why so much... So, so much of the time uh, when people get in on revival, don't be surprised if it's a holiness revival. Now, I'll tell you something else. Whenever, whenever there's a Holy Spirit revival and it begins to wane, Christians start a holiness movement. We're, it's kind of like we're saying the car needs to be revved up. And it's kind of like we're saying, let's reform ourselves so God will like us again. <laughs> the instinct is right. The outcome is not what we're at. That's not, that's not what we're really after. But the instinct is not surprising. And so I wasn't surprised when C. Peter Wagner was teaching us in 1997 when I first got into life in the Holy Spirit and he was talking about the ebbing of a move of revival and saying that, uh, proclaiming that a, that a holiness movement was starting. Now, I don't see it actually happening yet. And and maybe it will. If anything, I see, you know, the opposite, quite the opposite. So I got thinking about the madness of crowds. Which is what I started my sermon with. A story about the madness of crowds. And then the Lord led my heart into saying, that's what I do. Then I got to reading about revival this week, and looking looking back at revivals, and almost always my heart is drawn to this Robert Murray McShane man, this guy. One of the earliest Christian books that I ever got my hands on was called "The Memoir and Remains of Robert Murray McShane" by Andrew Bonner. Uh, Bonner was his good friend. Um, McShane was Scottish. 
And he grew up in an affluent family. And he was the youngest of five siblings. And the oldest was a brother. And his brother went to law school. And wanted to be a lawyer. But along the way, the Holy Spirit got hold of his brother. And so profoundly that his brother began praying for the family. The family, it could be noted, had a a pretty good uh, veneer of religion. But they couldn't get to that intimate place. It seems as though the McShane home, though outwardly religious, was devoid of true piety during these days. If we found a home today where there was a regular family worship or the reading of the Bible or Psalms, we would immediately conclude that this must be a household that was flourishing spiritually. No questions would need to be asked. But Robert himself knew that this was not the case either in himself or his family. And at the early stage of his great, his great contemporary friend, Andrew Bonner, wrote about these days. Well, he wrote about McShane. He said... Yeah, he got to the age where he went, he went on to, to his university studies and he was a brilliant man. He himself regarded these days as ungodliness, days wherein he cherished a pure morality, but lived in his heart as a Pharisee. I have heard him say that there was a correctness and propriety of his demeanor at times of devotion and in public worship, which some who knew not his heart were ready, were ready to put to the account of real feeling. And this experience of his own heart made him look with jealousy on the mere outward signs of devotion in dealing with souls. He had learned in his own case how much a soul unawakened to a sense of his guilt may have satisfaction in performing from the proud consciousness of integrity toward man and a sentimental devotedness of mind that chastens feelings without changing the heart. He's just describing being religious. And, and he said this is how he lived in those days. Well, McShane had a true awakening to God. Facilitated by the fact that this oldest brother who had a quickening with God. Died suddenly of a fever. Well, death often does this. In fact, the first great awakening was actually quickened or started uh, by, by a series of deaths that led the young people uh, in Jonathan Edwards' town to be talking about death and dying. And led Edwards to teach them and preach to them. And then led to a bunch of unconverted believers being converted. And oh, by the way, some pretty astonishing manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Which uh, were so astonishing, in fact, that it led Edwards to have to write a treatise explaining these religious affections because they didn't look like anything that anybody thought accompanied the Christian life. Sound kind of like something y'all know about? Like falling out in the Holy Spirit? Anyway, McShane... um, had a radical conversion, and then his life began to have a radical effect. Now catch this, I want to tell you this right off the bat. He started ministering at the age of 23. He was ordained on November the 24th um, at, at, at 23 years of age. Uh, I think it was uh, nine, uh, 1834. And he died at the age of 30. 
just to let you know where we're headed here. Um, McShane was uh, of such a, he, he was such an impressive uh, figure. Uh, not, not, not in an external, not in the Saul sense, but in the David sense. <laughs> and that, that at, at 23, he was, when he was appointed his first pastorate, uh, it was a, he was the first time at a church, and this church was what we would call today a mega church. And uh, his emphasis was prayer, holiness, the centrality of Jesus, and pure devotion. And it was the, it was the force of his life that drew people like a magnet. McShane was what we might call today a people person. He loved the Savior, of course, with a preeminent love. But married to this was a love for the souls he ministered to. And during this time, he not only made a diary of notes about his parishioners and their spiritual condition. Boom. But he wrote long letters to them. He seemed to have a particular affinity for young people. Being only 22, this says, uh, years of age himself, one of the most touching letters was to a youth who had left his father's home and was no longer attending church. He writes to him, I do not know in what light you look upon me, whether as a grave and morose minister or as one who might be a companion and friend, but really... It is so short a while since I was just like you when I enjoyed the games which you now enjoy and read the books which you now read. And I can never think of myself as anything more than a boy. This is one great reason why I write to you. The same youthful blood flows in my veins that flows in yours. The same fancies and buoyant passions dance in my bosom as in yours. So that when I would persuade you to come with me to the same Savior and walk the rest of your life led by the Spirit of God, I am not persuading you to anything beyond your years. I am I am not a, like a gray-headed grandfather. Oops. <laughs> Then you might answer all by telling me that you are a boy. No, I am almost as much a boy as you are and as fond of happiness and of life as you are, as fond of scampering over the hills and seeing all that is to be seen as you are. That's the kind of letters he wrote. Now, just a couple of years into his ministry, a few years into his ministry, um, he got sick. He was, he was afflicted with things all his life. Like, uh, he actually was a gymnast and, and, uh, he had, uh, he had, he had his own set of parallel bars that he did tricks on. Yes, 1830s. And, and, and they broke and he fell and he hurt himself so badly that they said he never had robust health again. And then in his, in his mid twenties, he was stricken with a heart condition. And in those days, they thought, if, and he basically had an arrhythmia. He had a racing heart. And they thought that if you would go to an arid climate, that you'd get better. And this pleased him immensely because he wanted to go to Jerusalem. And so he did. McShane, McShane went to Jerusalem with Andrew Bonner and a couple of other guys. And uh, his trip, by the way, ended up being a number of months and it ended up being a, a number of countries. But his main focus was, was um, 
was Israel. Uh, he actually is one of the earliest Zionists in, in, his, in his theological constructions, if, you, if you're inclined to understand what that means. But while he was gone, a man named William Chalmers Burns. Y'all know that name? Who was, catch this, a couple of years younger than he was. Went to his church and oversaw his church. And for about three or four months, he was there at the church. And listen, he was brokenhearted because nothing was happening. He was passionately preaching to them about the mysteries of Christ and the glory of God and the intimacy with God that was to be had and the invitation that they had. Nothing was happening. And so this young man uh, went home briefly to his father's church. And while he was there, his father was ministering one night to a crowd of 500. And the spirit fell on them. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> and a series of meetings broke out that went on for weeks. And when, and when Burns went back... <laughs> to Dundee he had the virus it was on him and he began to preach in the absence of McShane and this spirit fell on McShane's church and listen <laughs> uh, in, this, in this church it was a um, not a massive town, but a fast-growing town. And, and 1,200 people flooded this building. So when I uh, made, my little, made, my, made my little trip to St. Andrews a few years ago, a number of years ago, I just said, I just want to go to one place. I want to go to, I want to, go to Dundee. I want to go to St. Peter's Church. I want, to, I want to just stand there. I want to breathe the air. I want to walk around the building. I want to stand in the pulpit where, where these men stood. Whoops. And uh, it doesn't take much for some of us when we're there to say, yeah, it's here. But no one, listen, no one can explain what happened. No, that's not right. No one can explain how it happened. They all knew what. For the manifestation of Christ came upon them and visited them. And the presence of Christ filled, filled the air. So now catch this. The pastor's out of town. Right? The pastor is out of town. And the beauty of it was... McShane came home. There was not any hint of a anxiety in him that this had happened without him. He just stepped in. And it said that in a period of about three months, he had over 700 of his own parishioners come to him in, in, in anxiety about the condition of their own soul. Wanted to get right with God. 
they had meetings. Um, what, what, they, what he discovered when he arrived home was that, that the church was filled. I mean, every seat was filled. Every place was filled. People, people kind of crowded in to get in. And he said, and the meetings went on for months. And then he said this. And there were 39 prayer meetings in the church, and five of them were entirely led by and populated by children. (laughs) Now, guess what happened? You love this. The children's revival aspect of it scandalized the Presbyterians. And it led them to to write kind of what we would call inquisitional letters, where the pastor had to answer a whole series of of, of, of intense questions about 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 the revival. You'll be happy to know that the that the outpouring was entirely vindicated. But listen, I was one of those guys that uh, I, I used to think that people really could only get awakened to, to Christ after puberty. Because I didn't think you could really understand your sin until you had to deal with it. <laughs> and then people like Margaret were in my church who knew Jesus before she knew her own name. <laughs> and, and the testimonies keep coming and keep coming and keep coming. But it was very controversial about children. Now listen, who wants a children's revival? Who wants an outpouring of the Spirit among the children? Yes and amen. Well, what do you think, Pastor? What's, what, what do we do? How do we position ourselves to receive? That's really the question. How do we position ourselves to receive? If you think about any field of endeavor, people who get great at it learn how to position themselves to accomplish, to conquer, to receive. I don't care if it's mathematicians or hunters. I don't care if it's women shopping for sales. (laughs) We learn how to position ourselves to receive. And the father has said, this is what I made you for. And he has invited us. And so I want to invite you to number one, um, a renewal of just simple prayer. Find somebody to pray with you. Go through the awkward embarrassment of what prayer is like when you haven't prayed with somebody and you first start praying and you just sound like you're talking to each other and putting God's name on it. (laughs) Go through that avenue till the time comes that there comes in such an intimacy between you and that person that suddenly you're talking together to the father who's here. And the son who is in you. And you begin to get a breakthrough. And let's see if the madness of crowds might not put us on the run. What else will we do? Well, what if we actually started thinking about and caring about our own sinful condition again? I was in the Lutheran church even. 
Wanna, when, before you take the communion, there was the, there was the brief order for the confession of sins, which you had to do as a, pre, as a preamble to approaching the table of the Lord. Lord, we confess that we have sinned against you and you only, not only by outward transgressions, but also by inward thoughts and desires, which are fully known to you, for which we do heartily repent and are sorry for these our offenses. Do you need it to get clean? No, you just need it to get sorted. You're forgiven. You stand forgiven. But I tell you what, it's only when people get transparent enough that we start confessing our sins to one another that we get healed. It's only when we get transparent enough that we, we can kick the box of shame out enough that we can tell the truth. Please don't tell me that drug addicts and drunkards and overeaters can do better than the church can do. <laughs> but they can. They can. There's nothing that afflicts us more than our need to be right. So what if we positioned ourselves with the Lord? Caring about holiness, caring about prayer, centering our lives about Jesus and the name of Jesus and the centrality of Jesus. In other words, while impartation is wonderful, we should not neglect the exercises of our own life and soul that can put us in a place for impartation to be received. Do you understand? Hallelujah.